So as I said earlier, uh, we've come to our final message in the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, Over the past nine weeks, we have looked at very broken ways that we can chase after things like joy and pleasure and power and relationships and work, looking at the ways that, that we try to find meaning and purpose in this life in ways that, that are empty and, and don't produce the fruit and the things that we hope will come of them. I mean, the preacher in Ecclesiastes has given us much to consider about our broken pursuit of joy. And so this morning, what I want to do in some ways is flip this around and ask the question, how do we positively pursue joy? We've seen a lot of broken ways to do it, and in some ways we'll, we'll consider further broken ways this morning, but, but I want to state this morning, what does it look like to proactively run after joy in this world full of the mixed bag that it is? And if Ecclesiastes has taught us anything, it's that little comes easy, Right? There is little that is easy in life, and if we are going to pursue joy in a godly, healthy, life-giving way, the reality is, is we're going to have to fight for it. It's not going to just drop in our lap, oh, there it is, joy, that was easy, found it. We're going to have to fight, in some ways, tooth and nail, to find the joy that God holds out for us, and we're going to look at what that, what that fight consists of this morning. But if the gospel is true, if the promises in Christ are true, then this fight is worth it. What we gain is something truly beautiful, truly life-giving, truly satisfying, something that doesn't leave us hollow and empty and meaningless, but something that actually brings us joy. Do you believe this morning, even though we live in a broken, fallen world where we suffer and we struggle, do you believe this morning that through Jesus Christ, you can have joy? It's possible to have joy. And it's a fight worth undertaking. And so how do we fight for this? Or to put it another way, with, with so many voices telling us where true joy is found, with, with the deception that can be in our own hearts, and so there's a lot of words and a lot of voices and a lot of ideas out there, where's the clarity for how we pursue joy? How do we know if we're on the right path? How do we know if how we're running after joy is actually the right way? And so this morning, I want to consider how the end of the book of Ecclesiastes brings some clarity to our pursuit of joy and and just exactly how this clarity is gained. So here's the three things that we're going to consider this morning just as a way to kind of break down this passage. What brings clarity, what threatens clarity, and then finally, how to get this clarity. And I don't know about you, but I am so often in need of clarity. Like I get into my week, and there are so many things flying at me at 100 miles an hour, and it's very easy to lose sight of, hey, what, what am I doing? What, why am I doing what I'm doing? And, and is, is the things that I'm chasing after really what God has called me to? And is, is the end of those things going to be true and lasting joy found in Jesus Christ? Or is it a dead end into my own selfishness and emptiness and broken pursuit of joy? So if you're in need of clarity this morning, let's allow the word of God to bring that for us. So let's consider what brings clarity. The beginning of this passage, we, we see that the voice is no longer that of the preacher. We've shifted from, so the beginning of the passage, you remember when we first opened, there was a different voice than the most of the book of Ecclesiastes, which is the preacher, the teacher talking. And so here we are at the end, and this 
compiler, the author, the one who brought Ecclesiastes together, who took all of the words of the preacher and compiled them together. Now he's commenting on what the preacher did and how he's kind of giving thoughts about the preacher's pursuit of knowledge and wisdom and joy. And so he's making some comments about all that we have just read and considered. And this is what the author, the compiler of Ecclesiastes has to say about pursuing wisdom or pursuing clarity, if as it were. He writes, the words of the wise are like goads and like, fir- or like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. So being in a around kind of an agricultural context. Not all of you grew up on farms, but you're, you're around it being in the Midwest somewhat. I'm, I'm assuming you guys know what a cattle prod is or a sheep prod. Long stick, either a sharp point at the end or maybe like an electrical shock. The author of Ecclesiastes is saying that in many ways, finding clarity, finding wisdom is like getting the business end of a cattle prod. Like it's going to poke you or shock you. It's going to hurt a little bit. But that's what we need to be redirected from our broken pursuit of joy, the false ways that we pursue joy and meaning and purpose, and to be directed onto what is truly good and beautiful and lasting. We need the business end of a cattle prod sometimes. And, and so understand this. The broken pursuit of joy is going to be a little bit painful one way or another. It's either going to be painful in the sense that you're going to chase after things that are empty and meaninglessness, meaningless and purposelessness, or it's going to be painful in the correction to bring you back to what is truly good and beautiful because bad habits die hard. Our sinful nature doesn't want to let go. And so the word of God, the truth of God, sometimes when it corrects us is a little bit painful. And so I want to set this expectation right out of the, the gun here. Pursuing joy in a godly, life-giving, meaningful way is going to hurt to some degree or another. It's going to mean you have to look square in the eye things that you want to avoid, things that you would rather not acknowledge are there, things that may have so entrapped you and entangled you that to have to acknowledge them and deal with them is just going to hurt. But the question becomes, is it worth it? Absolutely, it's worth it. And so don't allow the pain of God's correction and healing and redirecting and the wisdom to bring you clarity. Don't let that pain stop you from pursuing joy. But the author of Ecclesiastes, as he so often has been, is honest about what this is going to be like. So then the question becomes, where is this prodding going to take us? The author contrasts all of the noise of the voices claiming wisdom and authority with a very sharp and direct statement in verses 13 and 14. The end of the matter. We're done. We're done theologizing. We're done philosophizing. We're done pontificating. We're done writing. Just the end of the matter. All has been heard. Close your mouths. Stop. Here's what you need to know. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. This is where the cattle prod of wisdom leads us. Fear God. Keep his commandments. This is your duty. Amen? Let's pray. No. (laughs) If only it were that easy. Right? And not just because this sermon would have only been like seven minutes long. 
but only if it were that easy because our hearts were just automatically oriented to fear the Lord and everything was simple. Oh, clarity, duh, fear the Lord. Okay, I got it. If only God could just say, fear me, and leave it at that, and we would follow him in obedience. But that's not how our hearts are. That's not how this works. And so we need to consider, we need to be transformed, we need to be reshaped and reformed by what it means to fear the Lord. And so let's unpack this a little bit further from God's word. What does it mean to fear the Lord, and how does that bring clarity? Well, simply put, the fear of the Lord is obedience, reverence, and awe. So to fear the Lord is to acknowledge his greatness and his goodness and his holiness and his glory, his majesty, his authority, and to have our hearts experience all of those things and to turn towards him in the sense of awe and reverence. God is that good. He's that glorious. He's that beautiful. His authority doesn't cause me to to buck against, but say rather, no, that's good. I'm glad that you are that powerful and you are in control, and I want you to control my life and to have my life. We respond with this sense of, God, you are magnificent. It's like being Isaiah when he glimpses the holiness of God and says, woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips. That is the fear of the Lord. When we are like Job and we catch a glimpse of who God is and we say, I put my hand over my mouth for I've spoken of things too great for me. That is the fear of the Lord. And when that proper reverence and awe and humility grip us, it leads to obedience. It leads us to orient our hearts and our minds and our actions around faithfulness to God, faithfulness to what he has called us to. When we properly fear the Lord, we recognize, Lord, you are good. You are true. You are just. You are right. And how you have called me to live, that is the path of wisdom. That is the path of righteousness. That is the path of goodness and justice. And to to properly fear the Lord is to also consider God is creator and he is judge. And as verse 14 tells us, he will judge Every deed, whether good or evil, even the things we do in secret, we think we're getting away with. To properly fear the Lord recognizes that and it orients us to how we are going to live our lives because we know God is a righteous and good and true judge. And so this is, this is the first way that fear of the Lord brings clarity. It gives direction and serves as a foundation for how we understand and see the world. It draws a line for us, okay, this is what is true and good and right. This is how I should orient my life. And so this is how other passages of Scripture talk about this. The fear of the Lord brings clarity for walking in wisdom and truth. Psalm 111.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. Oh, it brings clarity to what is wisdom and what is understanding. The fear of the Lord has the effect of clarifying what is good and righteous from what is sin and evil as Proverbs 16:6 6 states, by steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for, and by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. Oh, if you need clarity about what evil to turn away from, fear the Lord. Learn from Him, know from Him. And so when I properly fear the Lord and live in reverence and awe of Him, this is going to clarify things for you and me. It's going to mean that I'm going to listen to certain voices and not others. 
and all the things I could be listening to and all the voices and words and wisdom out there, when I properly fear the Lord, it's going to help me say, nope, not that, nope, not that, nope, not that, yes, that, yes, that, yes, that. So the fear of the Lord brings clarity for us. But don't miss this next point. Because I know how our hearts can be. I know how our tendency can be. Even those of us who are Christians, we do this. We reduce fearing the Lord to checking boxes of rules. We, we reduce it to a checklist. But that's not how scripture talks about fearing the Lord. Yes, there is obedience. Yes, there is following the Lord in a way that honors what is good and what is true and what is right. But it talks about the fear of the Lord being so much more. Look at what Psalm 103:17 says. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children. Steadfast love. This is God's covenantal love for his people. This is the love that promised, I will be your God and you will be my people. I'm going to save you. I'm going to pull you out of your sin and your mess and your slavery and you're going to be my people. I'm going to set you free. So here's another way to put it. To fear the Lord is to know the Lord in an intimate way. God is not some aloof sky deity sitting up there just waiting to strike us down the moment we mess up, half interested in what's going on. He is a God intimately connected to what is going on. And if you belong to Jesus Christ, he is intimately connected to you as your father. You are united with him. He loves you. He knows you. And to fear the Lord is to be brought into an intimate relationship with him. And so when we follow after God, it's in a place of relationship, not a place of arm's distance and arm's length. And so God calls us to fear him. He calls us to know him, to be in intimate relationship with him. Steadfast love is a love that results in adoption and redemption and intimacy and peace. It's a personal love. So fearing the Lord is utterly personal. And the fear of the Lord is also not some dour, dreary dread where we walk around fearful of God in this like, what's he going to do to me? What's he going to do to me? What's he going to do to me? Proper fear of the Lord is life-giving and it leads to eternal life. Proper fear of the Lord is joy-giving and leads to eternal joy. Proverbs 14, 27. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. Proverbs 19, 23. The fear of the Lord leads to life and whoever has it rests satisfied. Let me ask you this. Is your pursuit of status and success and wealth leaving you satisfied? Is bouncing from one relationship to the next leaving you satisfied? Is turning to lust and pornography and sexual sin leading you, leaving you satisfied? Is, is burying your pain and your guilt and your suffering and alcohol and drugs, is that leaving you satisfied? Because God's word tells you this morning, the fear of the Lord leaves you satisfied. It brings life to you. And so let's, let's dispel this notion that the fear of the Lord is some kind of dour, dreadful, dreary pursuit of life that I just shut off and just kind of become rigid and afraid 
and act like if I don't walk the line, then everything is going to go bad for me and live life just in kind of grays. Everything's black and white and gray and there's no color to life. There's no joy to life. That's not how scripture talks about fearing the Lord. Fearing the Lord brings satisfaction and life and joy. Turning from sin and death and broken pursuits of joy. Oh, this leads to celebration and worship. This is what Isaiah 35, 5 and 6 declares. The Lord is exalted for he dwells on high. He will fill Zion with justice and righteousness. And he will be the stability of your times. Abundance of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge The fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. How the fear of the Lord is a treasure because it brings life, it brings joy, it brings peace, it brings an intimacy with God that satisfies like nothing else can. And so this is how the fear of the Lord brings clarity because it points you in the direction of true life, true love, true peace, true acceptance, true fulfillment, and true joy. And here's the beauty of what the author of Ecclesiastes tells us with this fearing God. This is our purpose. This is why we were created. So follow me here. The phrase, for this is the whole duty of man. In Hebrew, this literally says this. This is man's all. Meaning this is your purpose, man. To fear God, follow that all the way. To know God and to know the joy that comes with following God. That's your purpose. So let me phrase it another way. You were created to experience joy. You were created to find joy. Your purpose in life is to experience joy. The question becomes, how are you experiencing it? And so the fear of the Lord as a purpose is packed with such rich meaning and implication for us. So for us to fear the Lord as our purpose how we were created to experience love and acceptance and peace and fulfillment and joy in God. So, so let, me, let me phrase it this way. Or let me, let's think about it this way for a second. Um, so often in life, suffering has a way of creating questions. Why God? Why is this happening? Or maybe another way, what, what, what's the purpose of this? I don't get it. I don't understand why this is happening. These are all fair questions. Questions we see all throughout scripture. And in many ways, we don't know some of that. We don't know why storms take out people's houses and even take their lives randomly. We don't know why one person survives cancer and another doesn't. We don't know why unchecked evil sometimes seems to run rampant through this world. The list goes on and on of questions why we don't really know the answer. We don't understand God's purposes in those things. But here's what we do know. Here's what we do have clarity on. All of that evil, all of those questions does not negate that our purpose is still to fear the Lord, to know him, and to find joy in him. So maybe this becomes the question for us in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our struggle, in the midst of our weakness. The question is, how do I experience joy in the Lord in the midst of this? 
How do I live out the purpose God has given me to know him and to experience him and to glorify him and to experience joy and life and peace in him in the midst of sickness, in the midst of loss, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of wrestling with your sin? Because we haven't lost sight of our purpose. No matter what question suffering raises, it doesn't cloud this question. It doesn't negate this question. It doesn't destroy this purpose. So we have the clarity we need if we look at it in the way God calls us to look at it. And so First City Church, here's, here's the questions that I want us to reorient ourselves around. Because we're not going to escape suffering. We're not going to escape hardship. But what does it look like to fear the Lord in the midst of that? What does it look like to know the Lord in the midst of that? What does it look like that maybe in the midst of the thing that is causing you to suffer, that perhaps God is trying to give you such a deep and rich experience of him that is going to lead to a joy that you could not get anywhere else? And so this is what brings clarity, fearing the Lord and understanding what that leads to. And so let that category drop right into the midst of your situation. So if this brings clarity, what threatens clarity? Well, in contrast to the clarifying power of the fear of the Lord, the author of Ecclesiastes also holds up the threat in verse 12. My son, beware of anything beyond these, of making many books, there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. So here's another way to put what the author is saying. Look, we live in a world of words. We live in a world where there are words flying all around us, different ideas and different thoughts, constantly bombarded by that. So just, just to give an example of what our world is like, did you know that the average woman speaks 16,250 words a day? The average man speaks like 10. <laughs> well, sorry. Actually, he speaks 15,669. So if you combine those, that is 5,918,475 words in a year. Add to that almost the 550,000 books published a year at an average of 60,000 words per book, and that is 33 billion words a year put in print and stocked in shelves in the Amazon warehouse. Then add all the newspapers and blogs and emails and texts and TVs and tweets and Instagram posts, all the interpersonal communications, and it gets just ridiculous thinking about the amount of words we are surrounded by. But here's the thing, words are important. We, we communicate, we thrive, our, our minds and our thoughts are shaped by words. They influence us, they challenge us, they direct us, and they affect us in ways we might not even be aware of. And so what the author of Ecclesiastes is saying, in, in many ways echoing what the preacher says in chapter 1, verse 18, is that there is a lot of empty words out there. There is a futility, there's a weariness when we keep chasing after more and more and more and more. Because there's weariness. I mean, have you ever got on Google and tried to research something and just looked at the number of hits you get on a topic? Like, just, just type in how to, like, barbecue chicken. And, and, and there's just endless. Try to read them all and see if you feel relaxed at the end of that about how you should go barbecue your chicken. I mean, in some ways, it's like, I just want to go make a meal and enjoy it. But if I try to read all of that, 
I'm going to lose all the joy, right? So there's a sense where all of these words and trying to keep up with everything is weary. It's hard. But there's also this sense there's so much empty talk out there. There's so many things out there that are trying to pull us away and cloud the clarity that fearing the Lord brings. And so oftentimes the threat to clarity is the bombardment of voices, the bombardment of ideas, the bombardment of things that are trying to tell you this will bring you joy. And then add on top of that your own heart, your own voice, the thing inside you that has a way of directing you in very powerful ways. And the challenge of this is that these voices often carry the deception of half-truths. So here's what I mean. As, I, as I've said earlier, we were created to find joy. And the deepest joy is found when we live for our ultimate purpose, which is to know God and follow Him. But notice what comes first. Look, joy and love and satisfaction and fulfillment and meaning and purpose, all of those things are not the be-all and end-all. It's knowing God that is the be-all and end-all. Those things are the byproducts of a good and loving God who blesses those who know him. A God who is, gives gifts to all. But the, the be-all and end-all is to know the Lord. And those things are the byproducts. So if we want true joy, we chase after the Lord. We don't chase joy for the sake of joy. But, but here's what happens with so many voices is they put the cart before the horse and joy and love and acceptance and fulfillment and meaning and purpose becomes in and of themselves and we end up even treating God as a means to something rather than the end itself. And so, so many voices latch on to the fact that we were created to know things, created to enjoy things, created to work hard, created to be in relationship and they latch onto the truth of those things, but they twist it and get us to chase after it in very broken ways. And so the challenge is, is how do we sort the truth from these deceptions? How do we sort approaching knowledge when so many voices say, hey, look, you really don't need God to know things. You really don't need God to direct how you think about the world. Or, hey, you know those relationships? You deserve to be happy. And so if this one right here doesn't work out for you, jump over to this one. If that one doesn't work out for you, jump over to this one. Hey, you deserve to be successful when you work hard. So work really, really hard and get all you can. How do, how do we sort those voices that have just enough truth in them to deceive us from what it means to properly fear the Lord? And so how do we get clarity? The ending of Ecclesiastes holds both the clarifying power of the fear of the Lord and the confusion-inducing emptiness of worldly wisdom. How do we properly orient ourselves? Now, one might suspect this, and this would be a wrong implication of this passage. I'm just going to shut out everything that's not the Bible. I'm going to close myself off in a bubble. I'm not going to listen to anything. It's just going to be me and Jesus, and I'll be good. Guess what? That's not godliness or wisdom. That's control. That's you trying to control your world. Now, yes, make decisions about what you need to listen to. Make decisions about the voices you are going to pay attention to, but there's a right way and a wrong way to do that. And just trying to put yourself in a bubble and close everything else out because guess what you still have to wrestle with? 
your own heart, your own deception, your own voice, the voice that so often tries to tell you things that don't line up with the word of God. So you're never going to perfectly put yourself in a bubble anyway. So you're better off approaching this a little bit differently. But here the author of Ecclesiastes gives us a hint of how we do fight for clarity by pointing really to the example of the preacher himself in verses 9 and 10. He says, besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight and uprightly he wrote words of truth. Now, if you've been with us for the past nine weeks, we know that not everything that the preacher wrote was wise and godly and right. But what was the preacher doing at least? Oh, he was wrestling. He was wrestling it out. He might not have got it right every time, but boy, he was wrestling. He was searching. He was fighting. He sinned a lot. He got cynical a lot. But he was locked in. He was engaged. He didn't just sit back and say, Ah, well, who cares? He wrestled. And so, church, follower of Christ, those of you who don't even profess faith in Christ, let me tell you this. If you give up on the wrestle, you're never going to experience joy. It's a wrestle. It's a fight. It's a struggle. And God calls you into that struggle. God calls you to to engage all of this world in its brokenness, in its beauty. But we don't like that, do we? We want to simplify things. We want things to be easy. We want things to come quickly. We want to, on the spot, know exactly how to handle a situation. Or on the spot, know whether something is right or wrong. Or on the spot, just have the faith that makes us a super Christian. And we apply this to so many things. I mean, I think of like growing up and playing sports. Like, I wanted to be like really good at basketball after one practice. I wanted, to be, I wanted to be an expert at playing guitar after picking it up the first time. Like, I wanted to be, you know, John Piper or Matt Chandler the first time I ever preached. Some of you guys might not know who they are, but they're really good preachers. And so we so often don't want to struggle. We don't want to wrestle. We just immediately want the thing we want. But as I said in the intro, the book of Ecclesiastes tells us nothing comes easy. But in that struggle, in that wrestle, we experience something great. And so I want to I read an extended quote from Zach Eswine here because he lays this out very well about how we often approach entering into the mess of life and how so often we don't want to have to do the work that is required. This is what he writes. You hear a crash in the living room. It is a vase. It might have been a vase you loved, You have four children. After you hear the crash, the shouts magnify. Mom, Dad, four different voices run your way to tell you, I didn't do it. No, he did it. She hit me. So there you are, encountering what's given. All has to be heard. You weren't there when the vase crashed. You don't know, you don't actually know how it all started. You are brought into a story that has already taken place. In order to make some sense of that, you have to slow down and listen Hasty reaction will likely render the wrong verdict with an emotional reaction built on irrational logic. Yet even seeking to hear creates problems. We are selective with data. We like to reduce complexity to simplify it. Some of us like to reduce disquiets because we want everything to be happy. Others of us reduce delights because we are more familiar with sadness and hardship. 
The preacher embodies a way of hearing that allows both to remain. We are created to enter mystery and contradiction with the fear of God and let it sit. For us who like control, we'd rather the vase not be broken in the first place. We'd rather the kids not blame each other. We'd rather be able to know exactly in the moment who's telling the truth and who's not. But life under the sun is not this way. We don't want to meditate. So now what? Slow down. Meditate. Consider. Wrestle. These are the things the book of Ecclesiastes, these are the things that God calls us into to pursue joy. Hey, we need just to take a time out and consider. We need to slow down, reflect. Continuing with the quote from Eswine, not only are we selective with data, when it comes to hearing, we are also noisy. We tend to only to want to hear our own voice. We struggle to allow another point of view, and because of that, we struggle to hear. But we are created to hear, even to hear voices that are dissonant from our own. What do we do with this kind of dissonance? We want to close our ears, but we are called to listen and discern the voice of the one shepherd in the mix. But we don't want to interpret or discern. So now what? So often we miss pursuing joy. So often we end up on a broken path to joy because we don't want to have to slow down and wrestle and live by faith. We want immediate answers. We want immediate clarity. We want all our problems to just resolve and smooth out. And God is calling us no. Because the hope, the answer, the joy is not in resolving the problems, but it is in experiencing God. And that takes slowing down and engaging, just, just like with another person that you engage with someone who is an actual living person. You don't rush that. You don't try to smooth that out and make that not messy and not complicated because what do you end up doing? You end up reducing life. You end up reducing personality. You end up reducing interaction that, that, is, enjoying, that is enjoying and brings life and brings relationship. And so if we want the clarity to pursue joy, to pursue the Lord, to fear the Lord properly, then we need to be willing to wrestle and fight for it, to slow down and consider and meditate on what is true and what is not. We need to be less quick to try to resolve all of the suffering and anxiety and problems and focus more on what does it mean for me to pursue the Lord? What does it mean for me to know the Lord? to chase after him, to consider what he's calling me to, to hear from him. So let me, let me give you a few questions to consider. As, as life comes at you, as, as voices come at you, as, as you find yourself running after things that you think are going to bring you joy, I want to give you some questions to help you just take a step back and consider, am, am, am I following the Lord? Am I fearing the Lord? Am I taking the time that I need to? So the first question, fairly simple. Does this show proper fear of the Lord by glorifying God? Like, do your actions line up with what God has called you to do? Whether it be how to love people, how to serve people, how to talk to people, how to treat people, your se sexual ethic, the way you eat. Just go on down the line. Does this, what you're doing honor God and his holiness and his goodness and his truth? And how many of us, we just kind of skip over that. 
because we just maybe automatically think we know or we, we just are too busy and too crowded and just going too fast to stop? But that's a, that's a simple and profound but very important question. But there's another layer to this. Does this move or this action or this, this decision move you to deeper affections for Jesus? And does it deepen your trust in gospel promises? This, this goes a layer deeper. Is, is, is your pursuit of joy, is the way you engage relationships, the way you engage your job, the way you engage enjoying pleasure, the way you engage knowledge, is that deepening your affection for Christ? Is that deepening your hope in the gospel? Or is it moving you to something else? Is it putting more hope in your work, more hope in your relationships, more hope in your success and your wealth and your status? Let's be honest, that's not always an easy question to answer. And so we've got to slow down and pray and consider and talk with others and wrestle that out. Does, does your decision, does your move, does your pursuit cause you both to face and feel the brokenness of this world, but also land with hope because of the gospel? Because these are, these are, these are extremes. One is, I'm just going to shut off from the brokenness and the pain and the suffering. And one is, I'm going to live with my head in the clouds and not acknowledge it. I'm just going to be Mr. Hopeful all the time and just not even acknowledge that things are bad and things hurt. Is your pursuit of joy acknowledging both? The world is broken, but there's hope in Jesus Christ. And I can face both. And I can endure both. And I can engage both. And then finally, does your pursuit of joy allow you to experience things like relationships and work and the, thing, the pleasures of life and finances and success and status and power as gifts? Does your pursuit hold those things up as gifts God has given you? They're things that are good, but they're not the ultimate thing. Because when they become ultimate things and we try to make those things the things we find joy in, that's when things get sideways as we've been considering these past nine weeks. But if they're gifts, then we hold them much differently. When things don't go as we expected, when things don't go as we planned, yes, we can acknowledge the sadness and the disappointment and the brokenness, but we also can know, I still have hope because of Jesus. I can still find joy because of Jesus. And there's probably some sense where God is wanting to bring me into some kind of deeper joy through these things by showing me that they're not the ultimate, by showing me that they are broken. And so are these things as gifts? Do you receive them as gifts? Do you hold them lightly as gifts? So church, there's this great line that we see both in the Psalms and we saw in 1 Peter when we were there. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Isn't that an interesting juxtaposition? Taste and see. And so my question is, for all of us, are we beholding Christ? Are we tasting Christ? Are we looking to Christ in a way that we are finding joy in him? Are we fighting through the noise of the voices? Are we fighting through the deception of our own hearts? Are we fighting through all the things that want to distract us and pull us away from fearing the Lord in order that we may see Christ more clearly? 
in order that we may see his glory and we may experience him in a more rich and profound way? Are you seeing Christ and tasting Christ by immersing yourself in the scriptures? Are you seeing Christ more deeply by immersing yourself in worship on Sundays? Are you seeing Christ by following him into discipling others and loving others and living in community? Are you seeing Christ by living on mission and seeing the gospel go forward and the kingdom go forward? All of these things have a way of pushing us deeper and deeper into Jesus. So when we gather here this, this morning in this context, this, this, I say this a lot because I, I want us to get this. I want to get this, so I have to tell myself this. This isn't about just, I'm just checking a box, it's cool, I'm here. Like This is where you fight for joy. And, and what we sing, what we profess, what we confess, what we hear from God's word, when we take communion, we're fighting to see Christ more clearly. We're fighting that the fear of the Lord may shape us and form us. So that is the thing that directs how we pursue joy. So it's no small thing that we do here. And do not forget that coming here is part of the fight. When you go to gospel community, that's part of the fight. When you sit to read God's word and pray and commune, that's part of the fight. And here's your hope. God is right there blessing and transforming and shaping you to bring you into a deeper experience of joy with him. Amen? Let's pray.